Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I am your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lastly. And our guest tonight is Jeff Schessel, the author of numerous books, a former speechwriter for President Bill Clinton, a founding partner of West Wing Writers, but more importantly to our conversation tonight, he is the author of the new book, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys, for having me. So I want to start it off with kind of a broad question here. What is it about John Glenn that has captured and continues to capture the imagination of the American people? There's a quality to John Glenn um, that on a certain level is hard to describe. I, I called him in the book an everyman Superman. He has this everyman quality. He comes from a tiny little town in uh, the middle of Ohio, about 70 miles east of Columbus called New Concord. The population was about a thousand people. It is a classic small town, Midwest. You think of him being born in, in 1921. So he represents that set of values. I think he carried that kind of humility, that love of family, that deep faith into everything that he did. And he was unembarrassed to talk about it. The other astronauts were not particularly interested in talking about their families or their faith. Glenn was perfectly comfortable doing so. And so that was a very appealing thing for, for a lot of Americans. But at the same time, this same person was a fierce combat pilot. He was was of all the Mercury 7, he was the most decorated combat veteran of all of them. And he was the only one of the test pilots. They were all test pilots, as I'm sure you know. He was the only one who had actually come to national fame by being a test pilot. In 1957, he set a speed record flying a Crusader jet from LA to Brooklyn three hours and, and 23 minutes. So he was this incredible combination of qualities and he just had a, a kind of charisma that made him very much both a, a man of, in a way, America's past, its traditions, but also the future. This was a guy in a silver spacesuit who was heading into orbit. And so what drew you to want to do this project? I'd always been interested in John Glenn. I, I grew up at a time when he was in the Senate, but I had always heard the stories of his heroics in space and always admired him. But what I really wanted to understand at first was why his flight was so important. I knew that he was the first American to orbit the Earth. But as I learned more about the space race, I learned that he was only the third person to orbit the Earth. The two Russians had done it before he had done it. And he wasn't the first American in space. Two Americans, Al Shepard and Gus Grissom, had gone before him. So what was the big deal was the thing that I wanted to understand it at first. And I came at the question from my background, my angle of approach. I'm not an engineer. I don't have a pilot's license. I come at this as a political historian. And so I wanted to consider this flight in its moment, in its time, in its political and its geopolitical context. And I think that you can only really appreciate the significance of John Glenn's flight if you think about what was happening in the world at that time and the challenges that were in front of, of the United States and in front of its president, John Kennedy, at that time. And when you break that down, when you look at the, the timetable and everything that was happening at once, then you start to see that this flight over time, as it was delayed and delayed and delayed, starts to assume a greater and greater significance in terms of America's sense of self and also the way America is perceived in the world. 
Yeah, the delays are really interesting. And you did an excellent job in the book. It's almost grading to the reader in a good way in that the reader wants the shot to go as well. And so you're you're going through these various delays, he's in and out of the capsule. And so the American people were were kind of riding along there with him, weren't they? They were riding along with him. And and the reason that I wanted the reader to get some sense in a way to experience by proxy this kind of frustration that the American people were feeling, that John Glenn was feeling, is that I don't think you can really understand the the sense of incredible relief and release that happened after his flight, unless you understand the buildup. I mean, this was a long period of time. Keep in mind, number one, that Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, orbited the Earth in April of 61. Glenn doesn't orbit until almost the end of February 62. So you're talking about almost a year. That's one kind of delay. But also, once Glenn was chosen for that first orbital flight, it was the fall of 1961. And then the flight, as we've been discussing, was delayed. But it wasn't just sort of changed on the calendar. Multiple times, Glenn suited up and was preparing to go that day when he was called back. At the end of January 1962 was an event called the Big Scrub. He was strapped into his capsule at the top of the Atlas rocket, and they began the countdown, and then he waited. And he sat up there for more than five hours. He was sitting up there atop that rocket longer than it would have taken him to orbit the Earth three times. And so this drumbeat of frustration is building and the nation's newspapers begin describing it as a national ordeal. And I really wanted people to, in a way, feel it so that when Glenn finally goes, you have a sense viscerally of what it was like when it finally happened. Well, I want to come back to the Friendship 7 mission itself in a few minutes here. But Glenn is really the straight arrow of the original Mercury 7. And this caused a lot of resentment. So if you would just take a few minutes to talk about the relationships between the other six and Glenn in particular. Glenn was a guy who was always really well-liked and well-respected wherever he went. He had a lot of good friends. He was a squadron leader in Korea, and these guys loved him for the rest of his life. One of them was Ted Williams of the Red Sox. He was Glenn's wingman in Korea and and a good friend for the rest of his life. But somehow when... Glenn became one of the Mercury 7. It wasn't working for him. And there were a couple of reasons. One was that this was a different setup. This wasn't a squadron that was all going out to to find the same enemy. These were seven guys who were competing for the same prize, which was to be the first human being in space. And then when the Russians beat them to it, it was to be the first American in space. There was only going to be one winner of that struggle. So that right there created some tension. But There was also the problem that you mentioned. Glenn was a straight arrow. He was, along with Scott Carpenter in the early days, he was the only one who, I mean, let's just put it frankly, who was faithful to his wife. I mean, we all know the stories. If you've seen the right stuff and heard any of the stories about what it was like on Cocoa Beach in those days, these guys would put in a very, very long day of training at Cape Canaveral, and then they would hit the town. They would go to Cocoa Beach and go to the bars, or if they were out of town, then they would go to bars wherever they went. And Glenn began to tell the group that they were putting not only their own marriages at risk, which was sort of their business, but they were putting the program at risk. Glenn said, look, you don't get to have a private life after hours anymore. You are an international phenomenon. You are cited regularly in the newspapers as the best of America. You are a role model. You may or may not want that responsibility, but you have it. And so as he kept saying, you got to keep your pants zipped. Well, not everybody uh, wanted to keep their pants zipped. And 
In fact, there was a, a huge conflagration about this in the fall of 1959. They were on one of the trips that they would take together where they would visit facilities where they were building the, the components. They were visiting the rocket plant in, in San Diego, among other things. And one night, after hours, Al Shepard crossed the border to Tijuana. He spent some time at a bar with a woman who was not his wife, and a reporter and a photographer trailed him. And they threatened to, to go to print. And there was a kind of panic that set in among the astronauts. Well, Glenn said, I'm going to take care of it. And he got on the phone and he called the reporter. He called the editor of the newspaper. He called the publisher of the newspaper. And he gave them this patriotic dressing down where he said, listen, we're in a race with the godless communists. And if you run a story like this, it's going to hurt the program. It's going to hurt America. It's going to hurt our national security. So they didn't run the story. But then Glenn overplayed his hand and he called all of the astronauts into one of the suites at the hotel, the Konakai in San Diego. And he really let them have it the next morning. And he said, this is exactly what I've been warning you about. And the only reason we're not in big trouble right now is because I pulled your chestnuts out of the fire. Well, Al Shepard didn't appreciate hearing that. And frankly, none of them other than Scott Carpenter, who was aligned with Glenn, appreciated hearing that. And it was one of the things that drove a, a wedge even wider between five of them on the one side and the other two, Glenn and Carpenter on the other. Yeah. And it's really amazing. A lot of these stories don't come out until years later, really into the 80s and the 90s, when the astronauts all start writing their autobiographies and their memoirs as to just how bad it was, not just with the original seven, but the second and third and fourth class of astronauts that follow these guys. I'd like to talk for a minute, if you would, about Annie. Glenn. Annie, their childhood sweethearts. I don't use this term lightly. I mean, you could really call them soulmates. And she's really integral to the story as well. She really is. Um, they had a really remarkable relationship, starting with the fact that they first met when they were two and three years old in a playpen in New Concord. The families were, were friends, so they grew up together and they began to, to date when they were teenagers and they, they were together the rest of their lives. So if you date it back to when they were two or three, they were together for more than 90 years and they really were soulmates. It was really a remarkable partnership. Annie supported him, which was understood at that time to be the wife's role. She supported him in all the dangerous things that he did from combat to test flying to the, the program. But she really struggled. You know, I think all the, the wives did to, to various degrees. I mean, they always had to wonder whether their husband was going to come back home alive. And she spent a lot of time talking to the family minister. They were uh, very devout Presbyterians and, and seeking guidance and support. But there was another uh, important dynamic to their relationship. And that was that Annie had a severe stutter. And, and I mean a severe stutter. Um, at some point, I don't know quite how they rate these things, but Glenn wrote in his memoir that they rated it at something like 80, 85%, which meant that 80, 85% of the time she uh, was unable to get her sentence out. And Glenn, not only did he not act like it was a big deal, he, he acted like it wasn't even happening. He was endlessly patient and supportive. He never patronized her, which is worth pointing out because it was a different world in the 50s and the 1960s. And the reaction that Annie tended to get when she would go into a store and try to ask for something is that people would look away, clerks would walk away, or they would talk to her children. It would happen at parties. And so Glenn was very much her support and part of her connection to the world, which made it all the, the much more difficult when he would disappear for long periods of time, either to on combat duty or for training at Cape Canaveral. 
Speaking of his family, one of the things that really struck me that you've talked about is these kind of tapes that he made in case he was to die in this flight and how impactful those were. Can you tell us a little bit about those and what it was like for you to find those as a historian? Well, it was it was chilling because I wasn't looking for them. I had read once that there was a reference to a recording, but it didn't say what the recording was. And I frankly didn't spend any time thinking about it. It was just a passing reference somewhere. And I opened a folder and here was a a script written on yellow legal paper, a script for a reel-to-reel recording that he made for his kids who were teenagers at the time, right on the eve of his flight, as he is waiting essentially in isolation at Hangar S in Cape Canaveral for his flight. And he made another for Annie. And it begins with the words, if you hear this, I've been killed. So you, you read that. And I mean, I, I get chills just talking about it right now. And I've, I've, you know, I've been aware of this for a long time now. And it goes on from there. I mean, he talks about his belief in God and his belief in an afterlife. He uh, says to his kids that he's going to send them a signal from heaven, he specifies what the signal is so they will know he's okay and that he's happy. He talks about the funeral at Arlington and he points out that there probably won't be a body to bury. And he talks with them about how he wants them to think about that and how he wants them to conduct themselves. And so, you know, the public John Glenn was full of confidence, very calm about this flight. But privately, as this indicates, and there was also, there was another letter that he sent to his kids around the same time. He was really grappling with the possibility that he might not come back alive, that he might become the first person to die in space. Yeah, really, really moving, moving part of the book there. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and dive into it. As, as you previously mentioned, you know, there were two Americans who had gone before him, Al Shepard and Gus Grissom. The Soviets had already orbited the earth, but Friendship 7 grabbed Americans' heart and minds really like no other flight. I don't believe until we get to Apollo 8 and the Christmas lunar orbit. So tell us a little bit about, about exactly what happened on Friendship 7. Well, the flight itself was a lot more dramatic than I realized when I started this this work. I mean, we all know the outcome. We all know he gets back safely and it's a great triumph. What I didn't realize is what went wrong when he was up there in space. And there were a couple of things, one of which could have been quite serious that went wrong. So the liftoff was perfect and his first orbit was essentially perfect and he was having a great time. I mean, you can hear it in his voice in the recordings, uh, which you can access online. He's just having a wonderful time and he's doing all the checks that he's supposed to do. He's taking pictures out the window, which was part of his mission plan. And, and then at the end of the first first orbit, the autopilot starts to go awry. And it's as if the capsule is is like a car with its wheels out of alignment and it starts to skate and the thrusters automatically kick in and move it back to where it's supposed to be. And then it happens again and it keeps happening and it's burning fuel doing that. So Glenn takes over the controls. Uh, He obviously knew how to do that. And frankly, he wasn't that disappointed in that. I mean, these guys always wanted to fly the capsules and they were pilots and uh, they didn't like being told that they were supposed to spend the whole flight on autopilot. So this wasn't the worst thing in the world from, from Glenn's perspective, but something else was going on that he was unaware of, which is that down in Mercury control, the Cape, a little warning light went on a console. It said segment 51. And what that meant was that the heat shield that was supposed to, of course, protect him as he went through the 3000 degree heat of the atmosphere, the heat shield had started to separate a little bit from the capsule. And if that was true, then there was going to be a little gap. That would be the end. 
for Glenn. He would incinerate on the way back through the atmosphere. And so at Mercury Control, they go into a cold panic at the end of his first orbit. He's got two orbits to go, and half the room thinks that the signal has to be wrong. The other half of the room thinks the signal has to be right. And if it's right, then as one of the top engineers said, it's sure death. It's sure death. And yet they're not willing to accept that. So they begin to have a debate and it gets fairly heated about what could possibly be done to save Glenn's life. Meanwhile, they won't tell him. Chris Kraft, the flight director, keeps Glenn in the dark. He says, we don't want him to panic. Now, of course, Glenn and the other astronauts were selected for that job because they were the kind of guys who didn't panic in incredibly dangerous situations. I mean, they were test pilots. Their job was to push the envelope. Their job was to, to make those planes almost break down. John Glenn wouldn't have panicked, but that was the decision. And Chris Kraft was the man in charge. And so they began to ask him these sort of leading questions. Like, and this is, this is the most incredible one. John, do you hear any banging noises? I mean, that's verbatim. Do you hear any banging noises? He's more than 100 miles above the Earth's surface. And they don't explain why they're asking. And th this continues to happen where they ask him questions like this. And then finally, what they relay to him is the solution that they've come up with, although they don't really believe in it as a solution, which is to leave something called the retro pack, this little package of jets that was strapped to the heat shield, leave it attached, and maybe it would hold the heat shield together. It was supposed to be jettisoned before re-entry, but they tell him to keep it on. But they don't tell him why. And finally, he's so frustrated that he bursts out and he says, what is the reason for this? Is there a reason? And they say, not at this time. That's what he's told. So Glenn re-enters the atmosphere. And again, we know the ending. He gets back safely. But not everybody in mission control believed that was the case. And Glenn himself understood that something serious was up. He just wasn't sure what it was. Two things that jumped out at me in that regard was, one, I think by the time we get to the Gemini and Apollo flights, we are talking about flights that take a significant amount of time. I mean, really, that go into the weeks. And this is not a lot of time. I mean, three, 17,500 miles an hour, three orbits of the Earth. We're really talking a matter of hours for mission control to figure this out. And the other thing was that there was no... There was worldwide communications, but it was not constant. I mean, later in the, the Gemini and Apollo program, NASA's really got that down. But there are times where Glenn's uh, flat out not in communication with folks. That's right. They had um, remote stations around the world and they would position people because, of course, you couldn't do it centrally. So you had to send a group to a couple of locations in Australia. You had to have somebody on a ship in the middle of the Pacific and in Mexico and, and all the way around the world and following the orbital track. And there were pockets where Glenn was out of communication. At one point, I asked one of the engineers or the flight directors who had been there in mission control in that moment. And I said, when you were trying to figure out whether that warning signal was right, I know that you used a, a teletype machine to, to send the messages out to the remote stations and it would take 15 minutes to get them the message. I said, why didn't you just pick up a phone and call? And he said, well, because not all of them had phone lines. Not all of them you know, had access to anything approaching a phone and the radio links didn't work in some of these locations. So it was super rudimentary. It's incredible how huge the advances were just over every every year as you move forward again from Mercury into, into Gemini and on, onward to Apollo. We focus on the rockets and we focus on the capsules, but the entire network that it took to make this work from the ground is also developing at an incredibly rapid pace. And so when you look back at these early Mercury flights, and again, of course, as we're discussing, Glenn's was the first orbital. So it was the first time they dealt with, with a lot of this. It was pretty basic. Uh, Shepard and, and Grissom 
flew these suborbitals that went essentially straight up and right back down. They were only uh, off the ground for 15 minutes. So you didn't have to worry about the weather over the span of the world. You didn't have to worry about darkness. That was another issue for Glenn is if he had to stay up there another orbit or two while they figured this problem out, then he was going to come down in the dark somewhere in the world and their ability to track him was pretty limited. So it was dangerous. Yeah, it always amazes me that Shepard has a 15-minute suborbital flight. And the next time he goes to space again, you know, almost a decade later or a decade or more later, he lands on the moon. I mean, just just a vast difference in, in the, the two flights that he took. All right, so we, we know the end of the story. We know that Glenn comes back. We know that he goes on this uh, nationwide tour. He is an American hero. So my question to you is, why does Glenn not return to flight in the Gemini program? Is he a national treasure? Is there political pressure? In your research, what sense did you get for him not returning to flight status? Well, there's a story, and, and Glenn often told it himself, that word came down from President Kennedy that Glenn was too valuable to send back into space, and they didn't want to put him at risk. And Glenn wouldn't say this was certain. He would say, I heard that this happened. And he did hear it because it was the sort of thing that circulated. I really looked into this and while you can never uh, you can never disprove it, you know, absolutely unless you have a countervailing order that Glenn will fly again. I never found any evidence for that at all. Glenn's expectation and his great hope was that he was going back up and he stayed in the program and he supported the other Mercury astronauts in their flights. And he expected to be put back in the rotation, uh, not just out of a sense of fairness, but because he had a kind of expertise. I mean, for a period of time, for a couple of months, he was the only one of them who had ever been in orbit. And so that was an expertise that was supposed to be applied to the next flight or the next flight after that. But he begins to, to get the message. He, be, he basically begins to get the runaround from the senior folks at, at NASA who won't tell him that he's not going to fly again, but they kind of try to divert him to a desk job. And they say, maybe you want a job, like a senior job in the administration of NASA, something like that. And it's painful for Glenn, but over time he, he starts to realize that he's not going to get the chance to go back into space. And he's not really sure why. Is it because he's older than the other astronauts? Well, he wasn't that much older than Al Shepard, but he was older. But I think that ultimately it comes down to the fact that Glenn did not have a lot of supporters among the senior officials at, at NASA. I mean, there's a reason that he didn't fly first or even second. They were putting Glenn in his place and they didn't love the celebrity of John Glenn. They didn't like the national following that he had. It gave him a kind of power that they didn't think that, frankly, any of the astronauts should have. And Glenn was very willing within the program to speak his mind, very frankly. And uh, that didn't always go down very well either. He had in the Senate years later, what was referred to as a prickly sense of integrity in the New York Times. Uh, it was referred to that way. And he had that at NASA as well. And it did not position him for much of a future within the program, even though he was by far the most celebrated astronaut. The lives and times of the original Mercury 7 is very fascinating when you look at their follow-on careers. I mean, Shepard obviously stays in the program because of uh, his ear disease. He doesn't fly until years later. Grissom goes on to fly in Gemini and, and would have flown in Apollo were it not for the flash fire. Dara flies. Slayton doesn't fly until 1975. Cooper goes on to stay in the program up through Apollo. And so it's really interesting that Glenn is kind of very early on, almost side 
sidelined into not having an opportunity. And they all wanted to go on to have further opportunities. They all wanted to play in Gemini and Apollo. So Absolutely. They, it was not meant to be a one and done thing. I mean, they were developing an expertise in spaceflight and it was supposed to apply later. And in some of these other cases that you mentioned, it did. So it, it's a profound irony that, that Glenn was essentially pushed out of the program. I mean, he was so marginalized that they gave him no reason to stay. And so finally, by 1964, he, he just, he gives up and he decides he's going to get out and he He's going to uh, follow the advice of Robert Kennedy and before him, John Kennedy, and he's going to run for Senate, which he did in 1964. He, he didn't win that race. He had to withdraw pretty early because of an injury that he got on the campaign trail. But And he didn't win the second time in 1970. But finally, in 74, he was elected and he served four terms uh, in the U.S. Senate. Yeah, an absolutely fascinating career. So John Glenn's obviously had a lot written about him. The space program has a lot of literature surrounding it, but you've been able to tap some new sources. Could you tell us a little bit about your research methodology and kind of what sources you were able to pull together to add to this story? Well, I didn't commit to doing this project until I was sure that there was something there that we hadn't read before and that it was interesting and it was meaningful. And so the first place I went was to the Glenn Archives at Ohio State. And I was just thrilled to see what they they had there. I mean, he saved everything. And then he gave everything to Ohio State. So I had his diaries from World War II. I had his letters home from Korea. I had lots and lots of notes from the NASA period, notes before very contentious meetings with his flight directors, which gave me a window into some of the things we've been talking about, about those tensions. I found the script that you mentioned and letters to his family from around that period. So there was a lot of primary material there that had not really seen the light of day or others really hadn't put to use. I also interviewed every everybody I, I could. Of course, this was a long time ago. Not everybody, unfortunately, is still with us. But there, there's a vast oral history literature from the period um, that I didn't think had been mined thoroughly. So I mined it thoroughly. And I also got a chance to talk to both of Glenn's children. I talked to Scott Carpenter's daughter, Chris Stover, who is not just Scott Carpenter's daughter, but a historian and a writer and a, a real scholar of this period. I got to know a wonderful, wonderful guy who I just saw a couple of days ago, a guy named Robert Vogt who was a Navy psychologist who helped to come up with a list of criteria by which they would choose the astronauts in 1958. In 59, he helped to choose John Glenn and then became very close to him. And he's just a wonderful guy. So I, you know, I wanted to go straight to the source where I could. And uh, sometimes the source was a participant and sometimes the source was uh, archives either in, in uh, Columbus or, or at NASA or elsewhere. It's fantastic. Jeff, thanks uh, so much for joining us this evening. Again, for our listeners, the book is Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. A great addition to the space literature that's out there. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Brian. Thanks so much for your questions. And thanks, Mike. Yeah, where can we find more of you online? Well, I have a, a website dedicated to the book and writing about it and reviews and information about it. It's mercuryrisingbk.com, BK for book, mercuryrisingbk.com. And I have a Twitter account under the same name, at mercuryrisingbk. Fantastic. Brian, where can we find more of you online? So as always, you can find me at brianlastly.com and on Twitter at brianlastly. And Mike, how about yourself? Well, I'm at mwhankins.com and I'm on Twitter at uh, Hankenstein with a T-I-E-N. All of us are online at balloonstodrones.com and our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Please send us an email at balloonstodrones.com slash contact and we would love to get an article from you. So if you want to submit an article, 
for publication, uh, please go to balloonsyndrome.com slash submissions. Thank you, and we'll see you all next time.